Hey John, did you know that Roroni is a neologism created by the original author of the Roroni Kenshin manga? Majide? Welcome to Majide, a Westerner's view of Japanese media and culture. I'm Mike. And I'm John. Today our topic is the film Roroni Kenshin Origins, the first of the three live-action Roroni Kenshin movies. Uh, so, I guess before we get talking about the movie proper, we should get into a little bit of the history and background of the time period this takes place, because we don't really learn this stuff in school. So it's not. No, we we barely comprehend our own uh, a country's history, let alone somebody else's. Yeah, so this isn't something that we would uh, have any knowledge of. This stuff was taking place about the same time as our own civil war, so we had other stuff to worry about that we have to worry about in school instead. Um, so let's start from the beginning, Roni Kenshin takes place in the 11th year of the Meiji era. Uh, the, the Japanese era system is a whole thing where uh, it's basically counting the number of years the current emperor is in power. Um, but the Meiji era started about the end of 1868. So Meiji 11 is about the end of 1878. So it's about 11 years after the Meiji Restoration, which we'll get to what that is in a minute. Uh, but before the Restoration, Japan had been in a period of peace and urbanization and cultural growth known as the Edo period or the Tokugawa period after Iyasu Tokugawa, who was one of the people who tried to, and successfully for him, unified Japan after the long period of Sengoku or the Warring States period. The Tokugawa area is about a 300-year period of peace, and for about 200 of it, uh, Japan was under a policy of isolation from the West known as Satoku. So there's no trade, no visitors. Uh, Japanese people couldn't go out of Japan. Well, they could go out of Japan, but if they came back, they'd be killed. Uh, so just about the only people Japan was in contact with for those 200 years was China and some from Korea. but the end of this period of isolation and peace, the beginning of it came on July 14th, 1853, when American Commodore Matthew Perry sailed his black ships into Uraga Harbor and threatened to burn Edo to the ground if they didn't let him land. So they did, because they didn't want Edo burned, and he came and he delivered his letter and he left. A year later, he came back and made similar threats if he couldn't sign or draft a trade treaty with the shogun. And there had been some stuff happening uh, between the British and the Chinese with the Opium War, and the shogun saw, hey, we don't really want to have an open conflict with the West right now, so we're going we're gonna to get a treaty draft signed. And they did. But the shogun 
acquiescing to the American show of force significantly weakened the view of the shogunate in the eyes of the Japanese people. And now that they were weakened, a new faction or number of factions, uh, the most prominent of which was a faction of nationalists who were militantly loyal to the emperor, began to rise up and further weaken the shogunate. Many in this group were people who fought against the founder of the Tokugawa shogunate, Iyasu Tokugawa, at the Battle of Sekigahara, where that whole unification thing was kind of solidified. And this is the beginning of what's known as the Bakumatsu, or the, the end of the Tokugawa Bakufu. Um, so now that this trade treaty was in place, things started to get kind of bad for Japan in the Bakumatsu. Lots of people really didn't like the foreigners, so there were a lot of foreigners being killed at a rate of roughly one foreigner a month. Sometimes more, sometimes less, but it wasn't a good sight. Um, and even more so, the Japanese economy, and especially the monetary system, became very, very unstable. Uh, the relative trade rate of gold and silver in Japan was higher than it was standard for the West. So people from the West were coming and buying gold and silver and stuff for very, very cheap and selling it. And it was kind of just throwing everything way out of whack. Some people were getting very, very rich very quickly and others were much the opposite. Um, and worse, Americans and Westerners brought cholera to Japan and they didn't know how to deal with that. And hundreds of thousands of people died from cholera. Uh, because of all of this strife and bloodshed, the emperor at the time, Emperor Komei, uh, was the first imperial in centuries to take an active role in state, and he issued what was known as the Sono Joi, or the order to expel barbarians. And the shogun had bent to pressure from the empire and tried to close Japan again, but ultimately failed. What came after this, the, the shogunate's very, very weak at this point. He's bent to the emperor, he's bent to the west. He's weak. He, there are doubts in the mind of the people that he can be a good leader. And the factions that oppose him are taking advantage of this. Uh, so what came after them failing to close Japan again was a pretty lengthy series of conflicts between the shogunate and the alliance of the domains of Choshu, Satsuma, and Tosa, who were mainly Western Japan, which is where... At that point, the imperial family was in Kyoto, the old capital city. This alliance fought the shogunate to end the Tokugawa Bakufu altogether and reinstate the emperor as the head of state. These people were known as the imperialists, and this is where Roni Kenshin starts. On the cusp of the Japanese Revolution, the Meiji Restoration, on the field at the end of the Boshin War, fighting for the imperialists against the shogunate forces in the Shinsengumi, is where Roni Kenshin's origin starts, where we first see Kenshin fighting Hajime Saito, and the banner comes out, and they say, victory for the Satsuma Choshu Alliance, victory for the imperialists. And that's where the movie starts. Well, that was quite the mouthful. Uh, let's say we take a quick break and let you, uh, yeah. I'll let you take a breath and we'll come back to it.
you out there. Do you know what horror is? You like horror films. You like gore. You want to hear four badass women discuss and dissect modern and classic horror films. Join us at Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, a good ghoul's guide to horror. Oh! On the Gummy Cat Network. Don't read the line. Do you know that in the world of the insane you will find a kind of truth more terrifying than fiction? And we're back. Uh, before we start talking about the movie, what do you think we read some stories from people? Uh, sure. Uh, as long as we don't have any corrections from last week. We do not have any corrections from last week. So that leads me to believe that we were 100% correct and accurate about everything we said about Pokemon. I would hope so. I'd be a terrible Pokemaniac if I, w- if I was wrong about something there. Uh, so I guess before we read other stories, do you have a Roni Kenshin story? How familiar are you with Roni Kenshin? I was, it was never one of those anime that I sat down and watched. I remember sitting down watching Inuyasha, because this was all about the time that Toonami was really big. Yeah. And uh, I remember it would come on. There are two things I remember. I was mainly remember the opening. And, uh, to, to, uh, re- reaffiliate myself with it, I did rewatch the, uh, the first episode on Verve. Uh, which is the Funimation Crunchyroll t- uh, service that they provide, where mm-hmm. you can watch stuff on from both on one platform. And uh, the one thing I did that did stick with me was that weird English J-pop song. I want to say it sounds like somebody tried to sing J-pop, or rather, you know, traditional Japanese pop sound in english and it sounds really weird because it's all squeaky and high-pitched and it oh, sounds yeah, like they it's did. something from they did hmm? do an english version of the theme song i okay so that was the the original uh japanese theme song in english yeah funimation funimation was doing that for a while it sounds like something for a magical girl anime and you watch it and it's so diametrically opposed to what should look what looks like a shonen style like a Naruto or a Bleach, something that's very action-heavy. Kenshin is pretty action-heavy, but it has uh, it has a lot of pretty boys and it has romance in it, so it has a pretty cross-demographic appeal. I know probably more girls that like it than guys, honestly. And I think that's the thing, is once you actually start watching the show, it's very much a comedy, more than it is like a... Like, it, like in the first... In the first scene, in the, in the first episode... Uh, Kenshin gets slammed into, uh, I guess, like, I don't know what you call it, just like a bunch of wood by Kaoru. And uh, he has, like, big eyes and, like, the swirly, like, uh, dizzy eyes. And it's very much comedic expressions for the most part. I mean, they even throw in the whole, oh, I accidentally stepped stepped in on you naked in the first episode. So I mean it's it's a comedy show. Yeah, it has ultimately. It has a lot of more serious action stuff. Like what the movie is is pretty condensed, distilled what the action parts are and it cuts out a lot of that kind of comedy slice of lifey stuff, but it has a pretty even balance from what I've watched. Uh I in preparation for this, I in addition to reading all bunch of stuff about the backstory, I watched first 20 or so episodes of the show. I wanted to make sure I got well past the arc that the movie covers. Uh, but yeah, it's a pretty even balance. 
Yeah, the movie takes it, the subject material way more seriously. And I'm guessing the manga is probably closer to the anime. Yes, the movie is very different. But yeah, as uh, I might have hinted there, I don't really have background with this show. I didn't watch this on TV. I hadn't watched episodes of it until pretty super recently, maybe the last couple of years. And that was only the first few episodes. And preparing for this is where I watched the most of it. But I did see this in Japan in the movie theater. Uh, I was at the Toei Movie Village with a friend, which is a big... It's kind of like the Universal Studios backlot type stuff, except it's uh, it's Edo Japan themed. It's where they film nice. their samurai movies and stuff. Um, this the, yeah, this feels very much like uh, a Hollywood style production. Like, if if nothing else, like it reminded me a lot of the Jap the scenes in Japan from the Wolverine. And I think and so I mean, it's, this isn't like a really cheap cheapo kind of production. This is. This is, you know, on the same level as most Hollywood-style blockbuster productions. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, but yeah, I was there, and we saw a poster for the movie, and we were like, hey, do you want to go see that? And so we saw it, and that was more or less my first exposure to Kenshin proper. I'd seen it before, but I'd known of it, but I hadn't watched any of it. Right. Uh, but would you like to read our first user-submitted story? Not user, listener-submitted story. <laughs> There you go. Uh, sure. Uh, our first story comes from Sarah Jett, who says, Oh man, Kenshin was my first anime. I recorded it off a of Toonami onto VHS. Still my first love. Heart. So yeah, like you were saying, it's, it seems to uh, garner a, a, a very female-centered demographic yeah. right off the bat, because I mean... <laughs> the, I mean, I, I, I doubt stuff like Naruto and Bleach were getting like, Oh my god, Heart. Uh, Nar Naruto might. Oh yeah, Nar I guess Naruto because that does have a very that what that we'll get into more slice of life and romance stuff from time to time. Yeah. Uh, but Jim Hansen writes, "I absolutely hated Kenshin, but I watched a ton of it in the early two thousands because I could." It was in the days of there only being a few legit anime releases in the U.S., and we had an anime club at college that traded in fan sub VHS tapes. Which, uh, if you don't know that. That was how uh, fan subs went around back then. It wasn't downloaded torrent. It was know a guy who spliced their own subtitles onto a VHS and they got traded around. Uh, it was... DIY. Very. Is, yeah, it was super seedy and weird. Uh, yeah, the things anime fans had to do back in the day. Yeah. Uh but he continues, Kenshin was one of the ones we had a bunch of, so I saw a lot of it, along with Flame of Rekka, Maze, Tenshi ni Naruman, and a few others no one has heard of. I haven't heard of those three. So, yeah, neither have I. Who knows? Uh, but anyway, that's, that's Jim's story. Yep. And our last one comes from Cat Willett, who says, I've watched it a ton of times, but the only thing I can think of that counts as a story would probably be watching Gohei get kicked in the nuts and continually rewinding it while dying of laughter. And uh, Gohei, if I'm not mistaken, is the little bratty kid character. No, that that's uh, Yaiko. Yaiko, okay. Gohei is... Let's see. Oh, okay. Uh, he is somebody from... He was in the first episode of the anime... He was the guy who's pretending to be Batosai, and then Kenshin breaks oh, his fingers. Oh, that guy, okay. And he comes back a lot. Okay. 
I found it interesting the, the difference between that you know what what we see in the anime and what we see in the film, but we'll get into that in a bit. Yeah. Uh, but that's Cat's story. But first, we have before we get into discussing the movie between ourselves, let's uh, we have something that can start a little bit of conversation. We have a question from Rico Kirby, who asks: Is the language everybody uses error appropriate, or is it Kenshin's Degozaru at the end of a sentence it? Firstly, uh, they used pretty different language in the Meiji period. It was one of the first times, I believe, when language reform had happened, so it was even more different than before it. But the Japanese that is used now is a product of uh, post-World War II Japan. So if you read stuff from back then, the language is... Super, super different, and it's different vocab. There's some different grammatical structures, I think. Uh, so in short, they're not using accurate Japanese because we wouldn't understand what they're saying. That said, Degozaru is... Uh, first, Degozaru is the a more casual form of Degozaimas, which is the polite form of today's desu, which is the copula verb. It's to be... I am, to be, she is, he is, they are. But Degozaru is not something that gets used anymore. Degozaimas is not really either. It's super, super polite. And it's something that gets used in Kenshin and other period films to give a sense of age to it. it it's a phrase, it's a end of sentence that feels archaic. Um, and Kenshin also uses the dono honorific, which is another thing they use to make a show or a book or a film feel old because something that is only used today in very, very rare specific circumstances has two uses. Uh, one is to refer to one's Lord or master. Uh, if you watch uh, Shinkenger, the samurai Sentai show, everyone's calling uh, Shinken red Tono or uh, Takeru Tono. And that's one way to use it. The way Kenshin uses it is it has the same amount of respect as Sama, uh, but it doesn't elevate the person you're attaching it to. It's a word that you use to someone who is equal or lower status than you, but to still show them respect. So Kenshin uses that to Yahiko and Kairu a lot. Kaoru. But that's our questions. Thanks, everyone, for writing in. I like having mm -hmm. stuff to read. I like uh, interacting with the people who are listening, or in some cases, the people who I beg to write in. <laughs> it's also a way to get into something we may not think of yeah. to ask in the first place. Yeah, people think different, so it's fun. Anyways, what do you think of the movie? Let's talk about the movie. Uh, I liked it. The movie is good. And um, like I, I honestly enjoyed the movie more than I did that episode of the anime that I that I that I watched afterwards. Like I feel like there, whatever you know, the the way they uh, took the story, simplified it in some areas, and expanded on it in others, kind of helped to tell a story that we're kind of familiar with, where it's a post-war era, and you've got this um, crime lord hoping to build power. After you know, now that there's an era of peace, and it's up to the heroes to bring down his empire before it's too late. Like you see that in Wild Wild West. You see that in. I, I I'm trying to think. Like aren't I think a bunch of the westerns also take take note of that, and I'm sure 
there are old samurai movies that probably tackle that kind of storyline. But yeah, it's it's a familiar storyline that you're able to pick up on. And uh, I did wa- I watched the dub version on Amazon. Okay. I don't know if they had both versions available. Uh, I I've had a copy for a while, so I watched my copy. Uh, okay. So I I didn't even know there was a dub. But I guess it's a decent it, you... dub. The voices actually sound pretty close. It, it sounds like they're almost trying to do imitations of the original dub of voice actors because it sounds pretty close. I was about to ask if it was the original cast. I don't think so because I think uh, it, it, it's too different sounding for it to be the exact same cast unless their voices have changed that I much. I mean, it's been 15 years, so who knows. But Exactly. So I'm guessing they're trying to sound like the original voice cast without being too without while well, also doing kind of their own thing yeah um but the the movie covers it covers the first 11 episodes yeah and even like it covers Batosai and it feels like there's there's that one bad guy who had like who had the mask that i feel like was supposed to be important and probably had more Time devoted to him in the anime and okay, the manga. Okay, so, that, so that's one big change to the movie. Uh, in in the show, there is a group called the Onewaban Group who worked for Kanryu. Um, in this movie, they were completely omitted, and uh, the guy with the mask and the guy with the dreads were people from an arc that to I've been informed is both later and a big flashback. So it seems like they're trying to tie some stuff from the end more into the beginning. I don't know. I haven't seen movies two and three yet, so I'm not sure, but that's what it seems like they're doing. Those characters weren't in this part of the show. They're just kind of filling roles that uh, certain members of the Oniwaban had. In the original, it also feels like they're padding out the uh, the bad guy kind of lineup because you've got the fake Batosai, and then you've got the opioid uh, crime boss, and then it looks like these, it feels like these guys were just there to be like, "Hey, here, here's two uh, what do you call them? Uh, like admins when you fight in like the Pokemon games where you yeah. where you fight somebody who's not the not really the boss but who's pretty mid boss who's you know who's yeah that sort of thing it felt like it felt a lot like that yeah because they never really tackled who they are and what relation they have to the guy but yeah. those but those like got a lot more got, has a completely different backstory but he got a lot more focus than these two people and yet. When like the guy's mask guy takes his mask off, it feels like we're supposed to know who he is. Yeah, uh, it's kind of weird. I felt I feel like in general the movie kind of because when you get to this point in the cartoon, which their motivations for going to the mansion are also pretty different in the movie. Um, but in the cartoon, you have a lot of interpersonal character work that there's just not time to do in this one. So. Uh, the reason that they're all fighting for each other and stuff is a little bit weaker, I feel. In this one, it was because Kanryu poisoned the village that they go to stop him. Um, in the cartoon, it was because they had they saved Megumi and they made friends with her, but she got emotionally cornered by the Oniwaba and she ran back to Kanryu and tried to stop him slash kill herself to get everything to stop. 
And so the reason they went to the mansion is very, very different. Uh, it was more out of a sense of helping the village, or helping Tokyo, I guess, even. Because it was Tokyo, not a small village. And a little bit of Megumi. I mean, they do little bit. learn about Megumi. The reason that, like, the, Megumi is definitely the impetus for them going there, right. aside from what happened. And they do go there to rescue her. But it, yeah, it, it, all that it feels very truncated. Yeah, like there's like only one scene of Kenshin and Megumi actually talking about their pasts before Megumi gives herself back to the to the bad guy. Yeah, but yeah, it was much more uh, friend focused, I guess, in the the original. And they're just not time for that, so that makes sense. But some concessions you have to make for turning into a, turning what, six hours into a tight two-hour movie. Exactly. Um, but, it, yeah, I do feel like the changes they made with, like, Batosai, uh, the fake guy, the fake one, because if I'm not mistaken, they establish him right in the beginning, because right. he's, he's one in of the, the soldiers who, yeah, after Kenshin leaves behind his sword, the guy who becomes, uh, who takes the mantle of Batosai steals it from him, and and assumes the mantle, and that's who it is instead of somebody, uh, which in the anime, which is in the first episode, but Tosai was a former... Um, he's an assassin. Well, Gohei. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a former student of Kaoru's father, who has come back for revenge. In this, it's more, he's a bit, he's an opportunist, who's like, I, he well, survived the battle. It's a different character. There now, are, in the original, there are multiple characters who impersonate being Batosai. Okay. So Jinne also uh, impersonates Batosai, but I believe that's mainly to get Kenshin to come out and, just like he did in the movie, come out and revert back to his Batosai persona and be uh, Hitogiri again. That's a trope that's very odd. Like, you see that a lot in various anime and various... Even in the West, you know, like, a bunch of superhero stories will try to have the have some villain character go out of their way to make make some make the hero kill or be the bad guy and it's like this person is sworn off of killing and is known to be a murder machine why do you want them to go back to that yeah, you know, I don't it, know it feels very it feels very counterproductive in a way yeah but different time and also plot right. devices Exactly. I guess it's just the idea of, oh, I can make him stoop to my level or something. I don't know. It's a weird plot. It's a weird plot device that a lot of people tend to use. And it's, it feels, it feels, it felt very, it, this time around when I saw it, I'm like, this dude is known for killing hundreds during the war. And why do you want him to start killing again? It's, I think, I mean, Jine just wanted to fight. He wanted to be challenged. It's what, it's, I guess, what he does. That's the role he's fallen into. And it's all he wants to do, I guess. And so if he doesn't have strong people to fight, then he has no purpose. That's just my issue with that, though. Uh, I will say, most of the fight sequences are really good. They're like, very well done. Like, it's very good wire work. It's good wire work. It's good. One of my issues with modern day action is there's a tendency to cut really quickly to mask the fact that you have terrible fight choreography right and they 
they show the hits in this. Yeah, the most egregious example of it recently was the most recent Resident Evil. It is quite possibly the worst shot action movie I've ever seen. Yeah, the Resident Evil movies do it. Uh, all the fucking Marvel movies do that shit. Uh, yeah, uh, good, and yet, and so thankfully we've been seeing, uh, when you get a, a guy who does work in stunt work and has, you know, and know, has an idea of how fight choreography works, you get stuff like this and John Wick. I still haven't seen John Wick, but... John Wick is pretty good. The fight sequences and the sh and the and, and all of the action sequences are very well thought out and shot so that you can see everything that happens to him. The second one has a couple of has a couple of issues with it, but the first one especially knows exactly how to frame a shot in order for you to catch all of the action that's going on in it. I t I tend not to be into the action movies that are uh just action with the barest bones of plot to drive the action. Right. That, that tends not to be my thing, with the exception of Dread, which I liked quite a bit. Oh, but, it, well, heck, Dread actually had a plot, had a decent plot. I mean, it's it all did. it is. Dread was, was uh, very good. Dread was diehard with, 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 with the action pumped up to 11. Yeah. Because, I mean, they're stuck in a, they're stuck in a skyscraper. They have to go fight the, ba the boss at the top. And they have to do it while they're surrounded by bad guys the whole way. It's Die Hard. It was like it's the, Die Hard amped up to 11. It was the raid with a story. Exactly. I've heard that too. I haven't seen the raid. Although the raid is another... The, the guys... Those guys down in Indonesia and Thailand, like they are also the guys who do the Ongbok, mm -hmm. are, I hear, are great at, at shooting fight choreography as well. The raid has... The first time I watched the raid, I really, really liked it as super, super good choreography. But the second time, I just couldn't get into it because, I don't know, I guess my desires for that kind of action movie changed. That and, pro that and there's only so much that fight choreography can do that when there isn't a story being told. Yeah. Dread did manage to throw in stuff like universe building and that, you know, I swear, we, we are being robbed by not having a Dread video game because I swear, like, a first-person shooter action style dread video game where you got to you know switch between gun ammo and cut down all these different criminal organizations that'd be perfect could be good um it would be really good it's just nobody's doing it anyway uh we're not talking we, we need to go back to the actual topic at hand Veroni kenshin and yeah it, once again it's a solid it's some you know it's solid action work it's great wire work uh as mike said and what does uh, very, very well that I feel is very important is it gets that anime style of action very well. It gets those big flying jumps. It gets uh, the different characters kind of signature poses. It gets, gets all, all of that stuff really without, well. And it all, and none of it looks Bad. cheap or fakey. It like looks it's very good. Doing, it's, all, it's done in a way that... Like, I remember this specifically, uh, the American remake of Fist of the North Star tries to do the anime-style punch that he does, and he kills the guy, uh -huh. and it looks so terrible when you do it in live action. And here, all of the, you know, what, when, it, when they do kind of go for the more, you know, hyper-realistic version of of action, where it starts getting more, you know, physically impossible, and it starts going... With the wire foo and with all the weird, like especially the fight with uh, I keep forgetting his name, the brawler. Sano. 
Sano, yeah, when he when Kenshin and Sano have their have their fight, it's a solid uh chore- it's a solid sequence. Yeah, it's very good. Uh the other thing I noticed when I when I compared it to the first episode of the anime was Kaoru is played down a lot in the movie. Like if you watch the show, like you you and I you and I both, well I've only seen one episode, you've seen some more, but yeah. she comes off I don't want to say sundere fully because I don't think it's supposed no. to be that, but she comes off as very forward, very impulsive, very, you know, you know, she does, you know, she's very passionate much. about she wants to protect her family name and the dojo and later exactly. on her she's friends. Ve- and there's a there's a lot, you know, she's very upfront about everything. And here she's more subtle. Like you don't get a lot of that, and yeah, and that that goes back to them just not having the time to flesh them out. I think. Well, I don't know about time. I mean, all you'd have to do is play her up at more and make her more aggr- not not aggressive, but more upfront about everything. And here she's she seems to be more just there because she's in the comic. It's there because she is the love interest, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, like, Megumi, they try to incorporate some of the stuff, because apparently she's supposed to be more effeminate and more flirtatious. Yeah. We only got one scene of her being flirtatious. Everything else is just kind of... It feels like they didn't know what to do with female characters in this story. Yeah, kind of. The the whole kind of entourage that Kenshin has, I feel, is weak in this. Apart from, uh, yeah, I mean, apart from Sano's fight in the kitchen, which was very, very good, and you kind of see his personality from the anime peeking through in this he's a pretty he's serious but he's also kind of lighthearted. he's a good exactly. com- he's a comic relief character in the serious moments and yeah you also i mean sano is the only other one besides kenjin that you really get a grasp of who that character is supposed to be maybe they improve upon it in the later movies but it really feels like they didn't know what to do with the women characters in order to really incorporate who they were in the source material, that or the actresses didn't know what to do. Didn't know what to do with them, and the directors didn't push them in a certain way. Yeah, who knows? Who knows what could have happened during production? Yeah. Um, another thing, they uh, Hajime Saito was not in the first bunch of episodes for this. They put him in way way earlier than he appeared in the show. Um, I've watched. Uh, according to my Netflix, about 16 episodes well after this arc, and he has not appeared in the anime yet. But he is up front from the very beginning of this movie. And how'd you, uh, that's the uh, the guy he, who becomes the police officer. Right, he is a uh, former Shinsengumi leader. That That's another guy who I feel like they were trying to, it felt like towards the end, because uh, he shows up out of nowhere, and I feel like Wait, is he on the take? Is that why he shows up? Because usually when you see somebody who's on the police force show up that out of nowhere, it usually means they're on the take. Well, I'm pretty sure that he is not a good guy in Kenshin because he is Exun Sengumi, who is uh, a police force that worked for the Shogunate. So he is very much on the opposite side of history uh, from Kenshin. And they saw each other at that battle at the beginning of the movie. 
So he ha- he has something going on. Yeah, Hishigami wanted to fight Kenshin initially, and then ever since then, uh, he's been he's been another guy who's been goading Kenshin to start killing people again. And yeah. it's like, here's this murder machine who's it's like if Wolverine decided I don't feel like killing anybody, and everyone's just like, hey, come on, Noah. Probably more accurate, the Hulk. Like, imagine Bruce Banner finally got control of the Hulk, and all you were doing is like, poke. Hey, come on. I mean, that's kind of come what on. happens from what I've seen. Well, exactly. Well, yeah, especially with Tony. <laughs> Tony always the instigator. Um, but yeah, Hishigami uh, was kind of like not a true antagonist, but he was kind of a, one of those bastard characters who was always, you know, uh, confronting the main, the protagonist, but not really... But is it really the person that the protagonist has to defeat? It's just... I don't know who... I don't know what you'd call that character, but that's who he is in this movie, essentially. Yeah. Ben, do you have anything else to say about this? I've gone through all my notes here, so... Um, I, it, I mean, it did get me interested to see what the anime was about, and then I watched that first episode, heard that opening song... And I sat through the sat through that initial, and I was good. Yeah, <laughs> I felt I like, like I was. Uh, I like the anime quite a bit. I think I'm gonna go back and finish it when I have the time. I like the dub. I like the original better than the dub. All the dubs pretty okay for the time period it's from. Yeah, the dub is very of its. It's very early two thousands. Yeah, it's not a bad style. Dub. There are much dubbing. worse dubs, but oh, oh yeah. I mean, it's not like it's. You know, it's not like the four kids uh, One Piece dub or anything like that. I mean, th- these are terrible dubs, but in retrospect, when we've got the likes of Funimation and the people, you know, the people w- who are dubbing now who are who are more passionate about anime than the people who were dubbing previously, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's very telling. But I think I'll try, I think Verve um, has the original. I think I may try that instead. But... I definitely want to cover the sequels at, uh, you know, at a later Netflix, date. I believe, also has both. Okay, so, I mean, we could cover... At some point, we'll probably cover the anime, maybe the manga, but yeah, I definitely want to cover the sequels later on down the line, because these, these this, this seems like the, probably the best anime adaptation that we've ever had Yeah. to live action. Uh, let's see. Sano appears in episode four. Uh, Jine is six, and then the mansion arc is episode eight. Uh, it goes pretty quick at the beginning, so okay. So it takes a bit. It takes a bit, but yeah, um, it feels like. I mean, yeah, it feels like somebody decided to take the action part of this of this uh, series uh, of this property seriously. And as much as that's kind of almost against what the what what the franchise is aiming to do. Mm-hmm. It also works in its own right. Like it works as a as a serious kind of period action movie, without you know trying without delving into the comedic elements of it as much. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that'll wrap it up for Kenshin. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when we cover like single single works like this, it'll be a little bit shorter episodes. But that's just kind of the nature of it. That's, right. So yeah, let's get wrapped up. Oh, right. Uh, we usually do a fun fact trivia round, but there's not a whole lot of trivia for this, so it's going to be a very fast lightning round of one fact. Kenshin Himura is loosely based on a real guy, Gensai Kawakami, an assassin who worked for the Choshu clan. It is said that he could be mistaken for a girl at first glance, but he was the most terrible of the four great assassins of the Bakamatsu. 
let's get wrapped up. Next week's topic is Godzilla in general again, right? Yeah, we're we're I'm taking the lead again, and we're gonna be doing something similar to Pokemon. I'll try to start focusing on singular topics instead of big, broad, general ones uh, in the future. But I, the Pokemon and Godzilla were the big are the big ones that I that I know the most about, and so I want to cover them in general, and then we can always break them down later on. But uh, all you really need, all uh, listeners really need to catch up on and know for next week are. The original Gogeta from 1954 and the 2014 legendary Godzilla, because those would be the big ones. Because yeah. we're going to be talking about Toho, and then we're going to be talking about uh, leg- what Legendary is wanting to do. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I don't recommend anybody watch the 1998 Godzilla, uh, but we will discuss the sequel series, which is actually pretty decent. That cartoon was good. We'll talk about that in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have any fun facts, any kind of stories, questions, and corrections that you want to let us know about, just send those to Majide Podcast, M-A-J-I-D-E Podcast at gmail.com. So that's Majide Podcast at gmail.com. And also, if you have any topics you want us to take a look at, because coming up with topics is more difficult than I thought it would be. So if people have stuff they want us to look at, we'll think about doing it. We... I mean, doing stuff I people want to see. Topics, it's, yeah. Well, for me, I'm yeah, having I can trouble. Come up with topics, no problem. It's nailing them down, like picking yeah. which one, like which thing do we not have any idea about? Do we want to cover? Yeah. So if we have an idea of stuff people want to hear us talk about, then that makes our job a little easier. Exactly. One other thing. So after Godzilla, we are going to cover a series called the tatami galaxy and it is a 12 episode show so i'm just uh telling you guys this so that you have a little bit more time to watch it because a uh was that that's like six hours of stuff is a bit more of an ask than two movies i feel so i think if we're going to do anything that's longer time commitment than two movies we'll give you some advance notice so you can catch up on that before we get to it and that's available on... That is available on the Funimation website. So that'll also make it available through Verve, which I just discovered and I am currently in love with. Yeah. Uh, VRV.com. Yeah. Tommy Galaxy is pretty cool. Uh, so look forward to that in a month. But yeah, let's... Uh, so if you like the sound of my voice and the things I say... You can find me over at GameKiwi.net, uh, which is a link to my YouTube channel, which will in turn link you to my Twitch and my Patreon, all that good stuff, where you can find me playing video games for the internet. Uh, mostly streaming right now, but I have some Let's Play stuff too. Uh, so go check that out, because I like doing it, and I would like people to watch me enjoying doing that. Uh, John, where can people find you? Uh, you like the sound of my voice, you can find me all over the Gumpy Cat Networks, in the sense that I'm only on three shows on the Gumpy Cat Networks. Uh, yeah, well, four, if you count this one. I'm on this, I'm on my own podcast, Popcorn Junkie, where I review the, you know, newest releases and what I've been streaming uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of watchability and also talk about Hollywood and filmmaking in general. And then I'm on Phantom of the Podcast, where with our founder, Vanessa Van Alstein, 
and L from Focus on Fantasy Romance, we all, the three of us, talk about the various incarnations of the Phantom of the Opera. And then I just recently launched with Jim Hansen, uh, who has sent in stuff to us before, uh, and also runs the random podcast generator on the network uh, with him and a bunch of other people. Uh, we launched our own D&D podcast called Tragic Missile, where I'm the first time DM. We're do going through the starter set campaign, Lost Minds of Fandelver. We've got a half-tiefling, half-drow named Eben Hart Nightbringer, uh, wizard accountant, uh, human bard who's an idiot, and the half-elf warlock best friend who keeps him in line, a dwarven fighter, and a gnome barbarian. And I lead the six of them on crazy adventures. Uh, and then, of course, we've got all the other fun stuff on the network. Uh, Drunken Dragons is our other D&D podcast. We've got Ultimate Showdown. All kinds of stuff is available at gumbiecatnetworks.com. And you can find all kinds of stuff there. Big thanks to God of Shamisen for use of their song Dragon String Attack First Strike off the album Dragon String Attack. Check it and their other music out on Google Play, iTunes, or at music.godofshamisen.com. Um, another big thanks to Daniel Johnson for making our logo. You can see more of his work at danieljohnson.design. And once again, I'd like to thank the Gumby Cat Network uh, for hosting us and allowing us to share our love of Japanese pop culture and media to you, the listener. And that'll do it for uh, this episode of Maj Day. Be sure to check back in two weeks for our episode on Godzilla. Reminder, the reading list for that is the original Gogeta and the, two, the 2014 legendary American movie. Until next time. Until next time. This is Mike with Maj Day. And this is John with Mati Day. Take it easy, guys. Bye.